Uh, well, what Jesus has just done is to feed the 4,000 uh, deja vu with uh, seven uh, loaves and a few small fish and uh, a rather impressive display again. I, I do think that miracles like the feedings to me are some of the most impressive ones Jesus did. All of Jesus' miracles are impressive in their own way. I think just in a, from a physical standpoint. Wow. I mean, where do you come up with all that food? I mean, that, that would have just been such an amazing thing to see. Because if you're continuing to serve food to 4,000 people, you're out in this, you know, open area, as evidently Jesus is. He just has people sitting on the ground in different spots. Then, you know, he clearly doesn't have a warehouse right beside him. <laughs> you know, they're not trucking it into him. I mean, it's just like, you know, it's always cool when a magician pulls a rabbit out of a hat. But there's a limit to how many rabbits he gets out of that hat. You know, sooner or later, you know, he doesn't keep pulling rabbits out. <laughs> you know, and yet Jesus continued to provide enough food for 4,000 people. <laughs> so it just really, that had, you know, some of the others too. I, I'm not trying to take away from them. But I just always thought, these miracles probably would have left me open-mouthed as, for as long as any of the others. Um, so, would somebody read 11 to 13? The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. Right, in verse 11, what were the Pharisees seeking? Sign from heaven. Sign from heaven. Now, there's there's several question marks about that. I wonder what they meant, a sign from heaven. Well, mine uh, has a footnote that says, a testing miracle. Yes, uh, a sign would mean an attesting miracle. In other words, a sign is a miracle that like proves something. So they're wanting a, they're wanting a miracle that would prove who he really was. But why from heaven? What's from heaven? That's where I always just thought, because that's where he claimed to be from, so let's see a sign from there to prove that that's so, who you are. Okay, so wonder what they were thinking. What would be a sign from heaven? <laughs> well, what would they have in mind? I was envisioning when Elisha poured the water over all the altar and then the fire came down from heaven. Yeah. I'm thinking like that... Maybe something with the stars, the sun, and the moon somehow. Something something celestial. Something that's either coming down from heaven or is going on up in the sky. That, that's, that's the only things I've been able to think of. Anybody come up with something different as to what they would even have in mind? And as far as I can tell, I don't think Jesus ever did a miracle quite like that. You know, I don't recall him ever bringing fire down or, you know, messing with the stars or whatever. Um... So that may be what they're thinking. But now, if you if you stop and read this passage, you know, in context, what strikes you as really bizarre about the Pharisees' request? Yeah, I mean, good grief. What else would you want? <laughs> you know, I mean, playing chess with the stars or bringing fire down from heaven would not be any more impressive to me than feeding the 4,000 with these loaves and fishes. I mean, wow. And look at all the other things he's done. 
I mean, that was just one out of a whole series. What's what's going on in their mind? I just felt like they were demanding a command performance, and it just irritates me about them. Everything about them irritates me. <laughs> Jesus felt the same way. <laughs> you know, who who do they think they are? They're so arrogant, thinking that they can command Jesus to perform like that. You're right. I'm not sure it would matter what he would have shown. Is kind of what I get from that. You know, they've just been watching all these signs, and now, well, show us a sign. Isn't that the way that is, too? You know, I don't think the Pharisees are all that different from people today. People who, well, if God would just do this, well, if he'd just do that, well, I can't believe in God unless this happens. You know, well, if the Bible just had this in it, well, if it just said it that way, and so forth and so on, and, you know, you come up with even some of those things, well, yeah, you've got that, but what about this? You saw, but what about that? You know, well, he can't do this. You know, it's like, I don't think the problem here is a lack of evidence. Like the problem is with the heart of the Pharisees. And no amount of evidence, I don't think, would have ever changed their mind. I think if he'd have done a sign from heaven, they'd have wanted two. If he'd have done two, they'd have, I don't know, one and one from deep underneath the earth or something. I don't know what they'd have come up with next. I just think they don't want to believe. And so they're going to they're gonna keep going until they finally come up with something to justify their unbelief. Well, he couldn't do a sign from heaven. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like... You know, does God have to convince us? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, we need to be convinced. <laughs> but he's really under no obligation to make us believe. <laughs> he's secure. He's who he is, whether we believe it or not. And so it's like, you know, who are we to put God to the test? <laughs> you know, we're the one <laughs> really being tested by our attitude toward God. Comments and thoughts on that? The first thing that came to my mind when I heard the sign from heaven was what it needed to, but also I got to thinking about when Jesus was baptized. Christ, God yeah, saying, point. Yes. This is my blood sign. I'm almost wondering if they meant something in, when tomorrow, I think, sign from heaven, almost something God proving this is a sign, maybe even by words, but that was just, I don't know, something I had thought about. The first thing that came to my mind. And who knows, maybe they don't have anything too specific in mind. I think they're grasping at something, trying to justify their unbelief. Well, we just can't believe in a, in a, in a Jesus that can't perform a sign from heaven, you know. <laughs> uh, never mind all the signs he's given. Hmm. I wonder if it would be the same thing or the same attitude. You know, they could look at each individual miracle as they did and come up with an excuse and always asking for another one. And it reminds me of how, when talking with people, sometimes we do that same thing, or others, when you say, you know, you have a, uh, a worldly attitude. Well, give me an example. Well, you did this. Well, that was because of this. Well, you know, you did this. Well, that was another excuse. Give me an example. You know, give me an example. And we keep saying, well, give me an example to prove it. You haven't proven it. And, that, and I think we sometimes have the exact same attitude towards any of, you know, something like that that they did toward Jesus. 
always an excuse for every example, but it's every example that proves the whole. And that's the way it is with Jesus. And of course, any one, I think, when Jesus proves it, but you put them all together, there's no denying it. But we try to pick each one apart. I think it's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, and that, what does that show you about us when we do that? Things haven't changed for 2,000 years. <laughs> That's for sure. I mean, I think it shows this unbelieving heart. You know, it shows our not wanting to believe and, and not wanting to be honest with all the evidence. I mean, somebody who really wants to know the truth examines everything and doesn't set up some sort of artificial criteria or come up with some way of looking at this to where I don't have to believe. And so, I mean, I think so often people find what they're looking for. If you want an excuse not to believe, oh, you can find one. You can find quite a few. You know, I mean, why didn't Jesus do aside from heaven here? Aside from the point Chris made, where I don't think it would have changed anything. I mean, I don't think God feels like he has to just satisfy our ideas as to what he ought to do. He's done what he knows is adequate. In fact, I would say he's done way more than adequate <coughs> in proving himself to us. If we don't believe, well, we're not going to believe. And it's a heart issue. And pretty much Jesus calls out people by that. Other thoughts? thought of a couple, a couple more ways that it applies. Good. We also tear down the messenger the way, same way the Pharisees did you know you're casting them out by the, the Beelzebul you know anything that they could do to, to, and we do the same thing and we also if anyone else you know we say well others see the same thing well then we have to tear those people down the same way the Pharisees wanted to kill Lazarus again and any you know anyone's <coughs> You're not a believer of him, are you? They went after the ones that that followed Jesus and, and believed in him. So several parallels with that, how we often do, I think, the same thing. Yeah, good point. Definitely. I mean, you know, we, we would not expect mankind to change a whole lot, so it's not surprising when we find, you know. The thing we do, though, often is to point our finger at people like this and not see some of the same things. Good. So that's a good, I mean, to think about, if your mind's made up, think about maybe not having your mind made up before you, <laughs> before you make the final judgment. I think think about being honest with the evidence, and think about um, not setting up our own artificial criteria, and then demanding that God meet it. I mean, God didn't necessarily do this the way I think he ought to have done it. Uh, he, he wasn't concerned about what I thought he ought to do. <laughs> you know, he did it the way he knew it was right. And so, if I'm saying, well, I just won't believe in God unless he do this, that, or the other, you know, well, <laughs> then I guess I won't believe in God. You know, I mean, like I say, it, I mean, obviously he loves us and it hurts him in that way. But it's not like God depends on me. <laughs> you know, I don't have to believe for God to be God and for God to be fine. <laughs> So all I do is hurt myself. 
when I come up with all these things where it's like, well, you know, God just didn't satisfy me. He didn't do this the right way. He didn't, you know, I don't think he really, you know, gave me that kind of evidence I'm looking for. Well, okay, maybe you're looking for the kind of evidence that he's not going to give you. <laughs> Why don't be honest with the evidence he has given you and deal with it fairly? And I think if we do that, the evidence is strong. What I think usually happens is people have ulterior motives for not believing. And so that leads them to questioning the evidence and coming up with something, like we're saying, picking it apart, trying to find, well, you didn't do this. <laughs> Other thoughts? Well, there are times when the disciples weren't a whole lot better, 14 to 21. <laughs> Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? How many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? And they said to him, Twelve. And when I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? All right, so they get in the boat, forgot to take extra bread with them. <laughs> Jesus warns about what? Leaven. The leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Jesus meant what? What did he mean? I think so. Their influence, their mindset, attitude. And Jesus sees that as something that spreads and corrupts. It's going gonna, it's gonna to just penetrate. And if you're not careful, you're going to have the same philosophies they have. But they hear laughing, and what do they think? Bread. We forgot the bread. What are we going to do? We didn't have any bread. What are you know? <laughs> What would you have felt if you'd have been Jesus? <laughs> would be a bit exasperating. You would think by now they would have known Jesus could handle a bread shortage. <laughs> yeah, wow. And Jesus points that out to him. He says, after all, um, you have eyes, do you not see? You have ears, don't you hear? I mean, what's going on with you guys? Look at what I've already done. You know, they completely missed his point. Because they're panicked about no bread. So they're not rejecting Jesus in the same way as the Pharisees, but they sure are slow to pick up on Jesus' ability to handle each situation. They're slow to connect the dots and you know, extrapolate to confidence in him in general. Comments and questions? So by hardened heart, what does that exactly mean? Like they just fail to believe that he was able after seeing all this stuff or is there something a little different than that good question I don't know the answer um, I, he just asked it as a question too do you have a hardened heart I mean guys what's wrong with you <laughs> well, you know it's like you know, is your heart so hard you can't even see the obvious 
always think of a hardened heart. I always think of having your mind made up in another way. Yeah. So maybe they weren't. He was asking, are you, maybe he's saying, are you like the Pharisees? Their mind was made up and they weren't going to believe. You know, I don't know if that, like you said, he's asking the question rather than accusing. I don't know if that's a big deal, but they they were determined that this is not possible. We have no no bread, and they were, and he said, is your heart so hardened that you can't? Like the message didn't penetrate it. Yes. Other thoughts? I'm trying to think I want to word this. But kind of when I read this, I really, I guess I see the more of the disciples here in us. Um, I guess when I think about it so many times that I might see God working in a situation where <clears throat> it was talking about like this Kelsey Harris. Uh, I don't know if everybody understands this or knows about that situation, but I think see how they put their trust in the Lord and things have gone well. Um, and they see that, and, you know, it's encouraging me, but yet the next time I have a situation where I can put trust in the Lord, I don't do it. You know, and I'm, I'm hesitant to trust the Lord. And I guess we do that a lot. You know, we don't we don't learn from the situations that we need to learn from. Um, I guess it's something that I struggle with and I need to keep in mind a lot more. To constantly remind myself of what the Lord has done for me and others in the past. And I guess to see myself as the disciples here and think, well, is my heart hardened? Do I just need to trust the Lord more or whatever? Uh, I, just, I guess I just see them a lot in our lives. Very good. That is, that is the application we need to make. Other thoughts? Well, look at the next section, which is a uh, rather odd occurrence. 22 to 26. brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. After spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored, and began to see everything clearly. And he sent them to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Well, what's odd about this? With two tries. Yeah, <laughs> this is a miracle in uh, two stages. How many other two-stage miracles do you remember Jesus performing? Mm, the one in the last chapter about blind and deaf men, or the mute and deaf men. He had to touch his tongue and also touch his ears. Yeah, but it's just two signs before he actually healed him. But that one seems to have been instantaneous when he actually healed him. Scratch that. But the healing or the miracle actually occurring in two steps. Is it? I don't know of any others. I've asked that question of several people, and I guess there aren't any others. Which leads me to question why. Do you, do you think in this case perhaps Jesus just didn't have the power to heal him all at once? That doesn't seem like a very logical explanation in view of everything we've seen in Jesus, does it? 
So if he, if he had the power and could have done it all at once, then why did he not choose to? Okay. For the man to learn something? Yeah. Sorry. Um, maybe. Why? <laughs> well, I was thinking maybe the man didn't fully trust that he could do it. Fully. Actually, I don't know what the man thought. It says they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. So, the text really never says if this blind man even thought Jesus could do anything or not. Would it have made any difference? It didn't seem to have. Yeah. Were Jesus' healings like less powerful if somebody didn't believe? Some people were dead. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Some people were possessed by demons. Some people like that paralyzed man in John 5 didn't even know who he was until somewhat later when he found him in the temple and found out it was Jesus. You know, he, you know, you had all kinds of situations. You had that lame man, this is Peter and John in Acts 3. He was looking for money. <laughs> I would I guess assume that there were Pharisees among the 5,000 and the 4,000 that did not believe, but ate. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. I mean, the people at that wedding didn't even realize, the head waiter didn't even know what had happened when he realized this wine was so much better, etc. So I don't know that it makes any difference. there. We solved that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did, but we still don't know why Jesus healed him in two steps. Trying to teach him a lesson. I think teaching the disciples or others. Yeah, not the blind man. Well, what lesson? They aren't seeing it. <laughs> uh, they're only scared. What would make you think that? The oh yeah. There's nothing like context to help us understand something. <laughs> what do you say? Don't let that get in the way. Uh, back to my favorite point. Um, yeah, look at verse uh, 17 and 18. Uh, do you not yet see or understand? <laughs> Having eyes, do you not see? I think the disciples were between the two touches. I think they'd been partially healed, so to speak, but not fully. They were still seeing men as trees walking around. They were still not clear in their concept of Jesus. But you know the problem that I think we have with that? I taught this uh, passage in a church where a friend of mine is absolutely, totally, utterly, and 100% blind. He was a premature twin back before they knew to regulate the oxygen in the incubator and set up scar tissue of the retina. And he doesn't see light and dark. He doesn't see a thing and hasn't since he was probably a week old. Um, and so when I taught the lesson, I taught to a, a class, I, I, we were talking about this story, and I said, okay, uh, Jimmy, I got a question for you. If I could touch you, and you could see men like trees walking around, what would you think? He said, oh, that'd be wonderful. <laughs> he would have loved that. And then I asked the uh, class, I said, now what if you were seeing men like trees walking around? What would you guys think? Well, they all thought it would be terrible. 
is that when you've been totally blind, even distorted vision would be tremendous. And maybe you wouldn't even realize how much there was left to see if you could see clearly. I remember when I was in fourth grade and I got my glasses for the first time. I had no clue what there was in the world to see. <laughs> it was amazing. Driving home from the optometrist, whoa, everything was bright and colorful and distinct. And it was amazing. It was tremendous. I, I didn't know there was anything like that out there. I didn't know you could see like that. It was great. I think there's a lot of people like that. They're, they're spiritually seeing men like trees walking around and they didn't know there was anything left to see. They thought they were seeing okay. And that's the danger is we'll be content with staying like the blind man in the middle or like the disciples. They'll be content with indistinct vision. We need to turn to the Lord for another touch to see clearly. Can you remember somebody in the Bible besides these disciples that spiritually needed another touch to see clearly? You may not be on my wavelength on that one. I'm thinking about the book of Acts. I was thinking of Nebuchadnezzar. Well, that's true. I was thinking, I think, Elisha's servant. That, well, that, his eyes were open. Yeah. Okay, those are good. Who am I thinking of in the book of Acts? Yeah, but he didn't really, he really saw at once once he saw. I'm thinking of somebody who saw partially and then needed to see more spiritually. Peter. Peter, maybe. Yeah, some of the sorcerer. I guess when you stop and look at it, there's a lot of them, aren't there? <laughs> <laughs> those who are who I was thinking of. I'm thinking of Apollos. Remember? He was teaching accurately the things about the baptism of John. But he needed to learn the way of God more more accurately. But really, when you stop and look at it, there are a lot of examples, aren't there? And maybe that just shows the genius of Jesus in doing this miracle. Miracles were signs. They pointed to things that were deeper about Jesus than what he did. This is a sign... And I think really for the disciples to encourage them to go beyond where they're at with their current distorted vision. And I think the very next section will also bear that out as you'll see the disciples again seeing and not seeing. And so we must not be content with one touch. I'll tell you, um, While this is a pretty popular explanation, if you read commentaries more clearly, I first understood this passage sometime after I was teaching Mark quite a bit (laughs) from Doug Ankeny, who was a guy in prison that I was studying with, who'd done a lot of bad things and probably was not, I don't know how he was at the moment, but he was pretty sharp. And we, we, we looked over this, and I just always said, well, you know, Jesus was versatile. You know, he could do it one way or another. And uh, he pointed that out to me. It's like, you know, you're right. And uh, then I, you know, saw the context, and then later I read that I wasn't, and he wasn't the only one that saw that. A lot of people have realized that in the context, uh, which you would expect. 
But, you know, at that time I remember thinking about this, which I think is a, is a relevant application. What about a guy who's really down and out? Drugs, alcohol, you know, immorality, really bad. And then let's say the Jehovah's Witnesses get a hold of him, and they indoctrinate him, and he really cleans up his act. You know, he gets out of the gutter, and he starts living a respectable life, and, you know, believes in there being a God, and all that sort of stuff. Would you say he sees better now than he did before? Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses, it might be a little questionable. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, maybe so. If it was a group that maybe was a little closer, maybe maybe it'd be even easier to see that. But but does he see clearly? Well, certainly not. You know, I mean, sometimes I do think distorted truth sometimes helps people in some ways. You can see it helping them in some ways. You know, they act better, they live better, they're closer to understanding. The problem is sometimes they they're content with that. And uh, the disciples must not be content with this. Jesus was not satisfied with them having eyes and still not really seeing. <clears throat> Other comments and questions? Okay. How about uh, 27 to 33? Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do you say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. How far am I going? 33. Okay. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Okay, what does Jesus ask them? People saying. So, Jesus asked for a report. And what do they say? Quite a number of people. Quite a number of people. Like? Uh, Elisha, some of the prophets. So, are those positive figures? So they report Jesus' favorable ratings in the polls. <laughs> but then what does Jesus ask? You know, it's easier to talk about what other people think. <laughs> but he's asking them to separate their understanding from the understanding of the other people. And what does Peter say? You are the Christ. Is he right? Does he see? At this point, he does. He sees that. He's right about that. I don't know what he thought exactly in terms of what the Christ would be, but he was at least right that Jesus was the Christ. He was the Messiah. So, and, and I mean, you know, that's a, that's a good observation. 
better than a lot of the other people who didn't have fully developed notions about who Jesus was. So I think you, you see that as being positive. Well, then Jesus turns around and tells them what in verse 31? But who was he going to be rejected by? The elders, chief priests, and teachers of law. Who's that saying? Religious people. Yeah, religious leaders. You know, it's like saying you're going to be rejected by the preachers and the elders and the deacons and the Bible class teachers, you know, or whatever. <laughs> you know, I mean, how would you feel about that? You know, I mean, think about what that would have meant to them as they heard that. Wow! That's really shocking. It's certainly not what you'd want. What does Peter do? Jesus. What does he do before he rebukes him? Why would he do that? Does he want to make a scene? Why would he not want to make a scene? For Jesus' sake? Like if you're rebuking somebody, you don't want to like haul off on them in front of everybody. Why not? Because it would be embarrassing to them. He doesn't want to embarrass Jesus, showing him he's wrong in front of the others. He calls him to the side to correct him. (laughs) 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 That was thoughtful of him, wasn't it? (laughs) Wow, what do you think about that? Jesus was very good to Peter. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What did he just say about Jesus? Who does he think he is <laughs> rebuking the Christ? Oh, wow. Well, I just think the, the, the fact that he called him aside is very telling in Peter's attitude right then. I'm sure he didn't see it this way, but that was the epitome of being prideful. <laughs> Come over here, Jesus. I'll, I'll tell you some things that will kind of help you not, you know, have such a misconception. So did Peter see? He sure is uh, getting that uh, like trees walking part in here, isn't he? You know, he went from being a uh, the brightest student with an A-plus answer to the class dunce. Right there. <laughs> it's kind of Peter for you. But, uh, but it's kind of us, you know? Every once in a while we have streaks of brilliance followed by total disaster. You know what this reminds me of? This is totally a, totally a different point. But it reminds me of young people. 
who will, every once in a while, show elements of depth and maturity that are amazing and turn around and do something so childish and infantile. And uh, it's hard to believe that those actions come from the same person. But maybe it shouldn't be that hard to believe. That's exactly what Peter was. It's a lot like we are a lot of times. You wonder what Jesus must think when he looks at us sometimes. Wow. In so many ways, we are so much like children. So what does Jesus do? Turns right, that rebuke right around and brings it on Peter. Yeah. What does he do? What does he say? Why does he? Why does he call him Satan? Being tempted by Satan to Peter. Well, do you think what Peter said was a temptation to Jesus? It could have been, right? How so? Well, because he, while well, he's rebuking what Jesus said about him having to die and being rejected and everything. So, obviously, I mean, that would be a good thing on some level, not having to be rejected and die and everything. So, if you were Jesus, you might be tempted to agree with Peter. Yes. I think Satan was using Peter to try to get Jesus to not go through with the program. In Matthew's account in 1623, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me. He sees Peter sticking his you know, foot out to trip Jesus up. Here Peter is one of Jesus' closest friends saying, oh, you don't have to do this. You don't have to go through with this. No, this won't happen to you. It's kind of like we are, God forbid, when we encourage another Christian to do something wrong. Maybe we feel sorry for them. And they come to us and they say, here's the situation. Would it be okay for me to lie? You know, I'm really in a bind, you know, and you really sympathize with them and like, well, you know, I, I don't think I would probably do for that in this situation. Whoa. When we encourage another Christian to do wrong, you know, you expect the world to encourage you to do wrong. You know the atheist and the town drunk is going to tell you to do wrong. But what about your Christian brothers and sisters? You come to them, and they want you to tell them what they want to hear. But you may be their last hope for hearing what they need to hear. Peter let his feelings and his own personal agenda get in the way of God's program and of what Jesus really should have heard. He needed to say, Jesus, we're with you all the way, and if this is the will of God, we'll back you 100%. And encourage Jesus. I wonder how many times we're in that same situation. And we make somebody feel better. It's kind of funny. Jesus doesn't <clears throat> handle this the same way Peter did. He turns and looks at the other disciples and then rebukes Peter when Peter took him aside and rebuked him. He does this out in front of all the disciples. Yeah, Jesus uh, did some things in that sometimes that we might have thought unwise. 
But I think Jesus is sort of using Peter as an example here for the others. And I doubt that Peter had uh, been quiet about his feelings about that among the other disciples. They probably all talked about that. I I like this idea, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. He's thinking of this his way, not God's way. He's got his own agenda. Well, when he does that, you know, it's like he's trying to lead Jesus off in his own direction. I think that fits in with with Jesus turning around and saying, get behind me, Satan. See, it's really like the get behind me there may almost be the idea of you get back in line and follow. You quit taking the lead. You quit trying to decide based upon your own ideas what we ought to do. You get behind me. I've wondered if Jesus even may have turned around with his back to Peter. Get behind me. And when we start trying to take the lead and and sort of impose our ideas on the Lord, we need to get behind him. And again, is this not Jesus' temptation sometimes, and ours, not to disappoint the disciples? You know, to fit in with other people's expectations. You know, I just, I love a few of these quotes, even though none of you will like this. But his commitment was to obey God and not to pour syrup on everyone's waffle. You know, that's exactly, Jesus was here to do God's will and not to cater to what we wanted. And that's, you know, the point here. You know, you're thinking about your own interests. And the temptation for Jesus was to fit in with what the disciples wanted out of him. And Jesus doesn't do that. He resists the temptation and he follows the Father's will. Comments and questions? Makes me think of uh, God's teaching to discipline one another. And from a worldly perspective, that just sounds, you know, uh, like not the right thing to do. You want unity, you want to show love, you want to be compassionate and understanding. And yet, that's God's teaching. And how often do we, you know, maybe want to throw up a roadblock in the way of those who may want to do what God says, and maybe in some cases a response, the right response would be, get behind me, Satan. Excellent application. God's will is not that agreeable to us so often. His will are things that we just don't really want. I think that's our challenge so often is, but but God, it, I don't want it to be this way. It doesn't seem like this is the right thing. How could it be right for Jesus to be killed? There's no way. Couldn't happen, won't happen, shouldn't happen. Jesus quit talking like that. You know? And, and, and the point for us, too, is who are we <laughs> to, to think that we are wiser than God? I like it too when you hear people sometimes say, well, God would never want 
and, and you stop and think, it's like, we don't know the same God. <laughs> or, or where did you get this knowledge about what God would want? Exactly. Who am I to say what God would want? All I know is what he said. When we try, start going beyond what he said and deciding, well, but I think here's what God would really want, or here's what he wouldn't want. Well, that's Peter. There's lots of things like this. I mean, this is, I think this is a profound passage. I think it's very applicable. Uh, I think there's more Peter in us than what we want to admit. And I think we would not resist Peter as well as Jesus did. I think we can think, I can think we can meditate on both sides of that and really see a lot of good applications, you know, in our life. So often, you mentioned church discipline. What about child discipline? I mean, how many parents want their kids to like them rather than doing what the Lord wants them to do? And, uh, you know, I mean, there's just, wow, there's, all kinds of great applications. Again, because we're not so different, <laughs> unfortunately. Other thoughts? Maybe we should, is it fair to say that we should always see ourselves as having some of Peter in us because we are always needing a clearer, fuller vision of God's will. Well, I was kind of thinking about that. You know, in Proverbs it says humility is the beginning of, or somewhere it talks about like that a lot. Humility is the beginning of wisdom or whatever. When we humble ourselves and we don't think that we have all this knowledge and we have all this understanding and we know everything, um, that's when we really start to learn, I guess. It's when we're humble and Fear of Lord is some is referred to in Proverbs, which goes right along with humility. Yeah. Good point. It's hard to have that humility. I mean, the, the humility is God's right. I just follow it. What I think doesn't matter. That's it's hard for us to do. We have too much. We value too much our own thinking, and I do too. You know, and I realize, you know, I think about different situations and times when, you know, I knew what the Bible said, but it seemed to me like that wasn't the best advice. <laughs> or that wasn't the best thing in that situation, which is a very arrogant attitude and totally wrong. Why do I think I know anything beyond what God says? But it's easy for us to get inflated opinions for our own ideas. Is when we kind of says this to Peter, talks about for your mind, not my own things of God, but things of men. When I'm getting out of that, correct me if I'm wrong, is that he's thinking more about himself and what he wants than what God would want, what would be best. And I, I think I can say this completely honestly that we all struggle with that because when we sin, the only thing we're thinking about is ourselves. And if we did keep God's plan in our minds at all times, we would be sinless. Um, so, yes, there is a lot of Peter in all of us. Um, and I guess, that just stands out to me because it's something that I think I struggle with a lot, is keeping 
God in line instead of my own will and what I want. Um, it makes a lot of difference. Because there is a lot of difference. Mm-hmm. Other thoughts? I was kind of thinking, um, just real briefly, like, just about, you know, the way to avoid that, I guess, uh, to have a humble mindset would, I guess, um, would just be like, not always thinking I have the right answer and to see what God's Word says about this and to be humble and open to what the Bible says about whatever situation you're in. Yep. I can remember being in a, in a men's business meeting years ago, and there was some topic, I don't remember what it was, but... You know, everybody was throwing out their opinion about how this ought to be handled. And uh, finally, someone spoke up and said, Well, this situation makes me think of this Bible passage. And he read it, and it was like, Well, there is what God <laughs> But it took, it took the uh, knowledge of God's Word to be able to take this situation in front of all of us and a corresponding situation in the Bible and say, here we go, let's consider this. And that's what we ought to be looking for. And certainly accept when we're have that pointed out to us. But that's really, I mean, that's the key. What's God's will? You know, Jesus told them Peter didn't want it. <laughs> and sometimes... You know, we may find ourselves in a position just sort of arguing against what God says. That's not a good position to be in. It is amazing that Jesus had the patience with Peter. I mean, patience doesn't mean with Jesus that he didn't tell him what he needed to hear. <laughs> that was one of the stronger things Jesus said. Um, but he didn't say, Peter, get away. He said, Peter, get behind get where you need to be. He didn't just abandon Peter. He put him back in his place. Thank God. What, a, what hope for us that Jesus was willing to put up with Peter. And I think so often that's what we have to do even in our relationship with other people. We oscillate back, back and forth sometimes between tolerating things that ought to be rebuked and just resignation and ready to shut the door on somebody. Well we, well, we need to be frank about what needs to be heard, but not give up. Continue working with somebody, frankly and plainly. And, you know, sometimes we're either, we're either just, well, we just accept it, or, well, I'm tired of this. I don't want to deal with that anymore. And, and Jesus was, you know, he had that balance, you know, where he was able to work with these disciples. Some people wouldn't let him work with but they would. Peter would keep following even after he heard this rebuke. And I think learn from it. You know, if we've got that attitude, if we're willing to listen and learn, Jesus is patient. Well, other comments? Alright, why don't we stop here then, and uh, we will pick up in 34. My plan is, I think, to be here two weeks from today. And uh, the last week of August is when I intend to switch from two